Hi guys, as uh, one of our segments during February, uh, we wanted to do a Black History moment just to commemorate Black History in February. So I'm going to be sharing something, either a thing or a person or an event that I think is has uh, impacted me um, as far as Black History goes. So the first one I wanted to start off with was I was thinking about people and innovators, um, but I think I wanted to kind of start with the core which is the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. This is a song that was written by James Weldon Johnson. It was set to music by his brother. And basically this song I learned in church growing up. And it basically can be like a Christian hymn, but it's also, it does something that I really enjoy that the Black people have done, which is being able to weave in our own past and difficulty in a way that that talks about it and brings it to God and looks to God for resolution. Basically, it's a song that starts off, lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring with the harmonies of liberty. It's a song about triumph, but it also is a song that remembers difficulties of slavery when it says, stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod felt in the days when hope unborn had died. It goes on and remembers how God has brought them through slavery, brought us through slavery. And then on top of that, as we move forward in our lives in this country, it even reminds us as is a normal Christian um, practice, remembering where God brought us from near the end where it says, after saying, you know, thou who is by thy might led us into the light, Keep us forever in the path, we pray, lest our feet stray from the places, our God, where we met thee, lest our hearts, drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee. And at the end, it ends with, true to our God, true to our native land. It's basically a Christian hymn, I think, in Black National Anthem, showing how God has brought us through so much in this country. While the stuff that we were brought through shouldn't have happened in the first place, especially African-American identity. This is one of the core things that I like to remember. God bringing us out of horrible circumstances and us being guided by God and, and looking to God for our source of encouragement and the person who is guiding us through it. So look it up, lift every voice and sing. I didn't sing it. Um, maybe that's another podcast. We'll see, but <laughs> look it up. Amanda Seals, if you can see, has a very funny sketch on it in her HBO her comedy special where she talks about people singing it. So look it, look it up for yourselves. Thank you. Hi guys, this is the Judson Podcast. We're a diverse group of friends to get together to talk about faith, culture, and all the things that interest us. And uh, today's topic is going to be Christian leaders, the good and the bad of it. Um, all of us have well, obviously been in churches or in churches, and we have been our you know Christian leaders in some capacity, and have obviously been under them. So we just wanted to discuss that and see what you all thought. To start it off. Our question of the week is, who is a person 
that inspires you that others may be surprised by? Hey, everyone. This is Scott from Providence. Uh, one of my top inspirations for me as a minister, as a leader, as a human being is actually Malcolm X. I've been a lead pastor and I'm always working on my rhetorical skills. I'm always working on my communication skills. When I think of someone who is like a great public speaker, someone who inspires lots and lots of people, when I, when I picture that person, it's Malcolm X. Like, I'm grateful that he lived in a time where they were able to record videos of him. And you can actually find lots of them on YouTube. Because even in those grainy black and white videos from the 50s and 60s, like, his charisma just, like, comes through. Because he expresses anger and such eloquence and conviction, you know, that's part of the reason why he was such a force for the civil rights movement and the black power movement overall. No Hollywood reproduction can compare to, like, the fire in his voice whenever I watch him speak. Uh, Denzel was good. He was good. Denzel. But when I think of someone that I want to, like, act like and whose mannerisms I want to pick up, you know, it would be Malcolm X. Someone who I would say inspires me, Brenda Saltz McNeil. I've been able to see some of her sermons. She's a, right now a pastor at Quest Church in Seattle. Seen like a growth and seen someone not just believe the same things and say the same things, but hold views and then challenge them and, and then grow. So for instance, what I've heard from her is more about her views on reconciliation and things like that with race and how she's done like whole workshops with people and stuff like that. And then later on, <clears throat> kind of going back to the drawing board and seeing what worked of that and what didn't and her own process of coming to value justice of coming from the charismatic church and a lot of different things. So yeah, just seeing another older black Christian be able to navigate the the treacherous world of uh, quote-unquote reconciliation and kind of not just keep her faith, but also hold both the hope that we're supposed to have as Christians, but also the, the realism and not just easily falling into, well, I'm just going to tell people the same thing for the thousandth time, even though they're not going to listen, you know, but trying to hold all the what we need as Christians together. So, So she represents a good balance for you. Yeah. A good balance, but also, I guess, seeing growth over years. Yeah. Mm. Hi, guys. This is Jenny from Brooklyn. I don't think this is exactly what you sort of answer you're expecting when you pose this question, but I'm actually going to say my sister. I have two sisters. I've given a shout out to the other one on the podcast before, but now I want to talk about my second sister, and she... Well, when I was thinking about people who I look up to and admire, I think I, my first thought is of people who do something that I personally find really challenging that I wish I could do better, and they do that whatever it is really, really well. Um, so something I'm not great at is using my downtime productively. I feel like there are all sorts of things that I could do with my downtime. Maybe learn a new skill or use a skill I already have. Like there are a bunch of things I would like to learn I just haven't plucked up the motivation to do it. And my sister has, she's a writer and she doesn't do it for work. She just does it in her free time, in her downtime. And at this point, she's probably written like almost a dozen novels. And this is not first draft. These are 
edited, full-length, real-deal, high-fantasy novels. <laughs> I admire her so much for being able to do that. You know, I think back over the hours of free time I've had because of coronavirus, and what do I have to show for it? But then I look at her and, you know, she did NaNo, which, for those of you who don't know, is um, you write half of a novel during the month of November. And she did NaNo this year, and she did it last year. And I've been thinking recently, boy, I should be spending my free time better. And my sister is just the pinnacle of that. So I wanted to give her a shout out. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool seeing the diversity of people who have inspired us. And it's kind of interesting to compare those people to what we picture when we picture the typical church pastor. Um, oftentimes, it's very monolithic, I would say. And that's part of what we want to talk about today, which is, is there a problem in Christian leadership today? We see our nation becoming more and more diverse. That same growth of voices is not really being reflected in church circles. And more than that, when we see pastors in the news, especially celebrity pastors, Often what we see are stories of misconduct. And that's one of the things that led us to want to have this conversation. I mean, this goes back uh, a few years, but especially in the last couple years. Think about Bill Hybels, who pastored Willow Creek Church, being accused of sexual misconduct. We think of Mark Driscoll, who was abusive to his church staff. We think of Jerry Falwell Jr., who also was accused of sexual misconduct. And most recently, as we've mentioned before on this pod, Carl Lenz, the pastor of Hillsong, New York, who was removed for his own sexual affairs. And, you know, there are several more stories like this if we wanted to bring them up. But I guess to start the conversation, thinking about your own church experiences and the reasons why you guys have moved around your church settings, would you say that pastoral misconduct is unusual or is it the norm? in your experience? We've had, like, in our church growing up, great pastors. When our founding pastor died, our church didn't, I would say, uh, didn't use the best method to figure out a pastor. It went for someone who was good at preaching um, energetically and good, truly good at preaching, but... It caused a, a schism. Yeah, because a lot of people just started leaving because of how this person was treating them, more money this, money problems this or that. So that's kind of like what I'm bringing up. Like, yeah. you know, we don't we don't have extreme stories like ripped from the headlines of today's news. Right. But things like personality clashes, schisms, you know, people being removed or people leaving. Um, that seems to be, when I think about like every church experience, more common than not. Like that happened actually more times than it didn't happen in the churches I've been to. Hmm. Yeah, I think... The churches I've known, at least black churches, they're more, I guess you could call them family churches, where it's more like a lot of families, as opposed to the multi-ethnic ones sometimes, or other ones where it's not like families, but it's just kind of like more corporate, I guess. I've seen more divisions and splits in the more corporate ones, less family-centered ones, but um, I've definitely seen a lot. And I don't know, maybe you want to talk to it, Scott, but I heard, uh, I've heard that there's a stereotype of Korean churches... Oh, yeah, that's another one I was going to mention. <laughs> what do you like, speak to that? This is not a problem, for example, for white evangelicals. There's, uh, you know, one of the stereotypes of Korean churches is there's so many Korean churches because they split off from another church. 
in my own experience, uh, a lot of people were upset with my pastor growing up for lots of reasons. There was a lot of different clashes, so it's not unusual. I think also in a church that's big enough, sadly, it's almost like at some point there's going to be some sort of scandal. David's kind of looking like, well, shouldn't, that shouldn't have to be that way. <laughs> but yeah, my church, which I won't name on this particular show, a church I used to attend that's a big church in New York City, has had its share of smaller you know, staff leaving in situations where we were wondering if it was voluntary or why they were leaving, what the reasoning was behind it, if that was really the best choice staff leaving because they had mishandled money or were accused of some inappropriate relationship in the past. It makes me think that it's more a failure of the leadership body as a whole, because sometimes when we looked at the situation as a congregation, we would say, oh, in this situation, it seems like the leader who is being let go is at fault. But a lot of other times where people were leaving, it seemed like the governance structure was at fault and it was choosing the wrong people to be let go. So I think, I don't know that I would say it's always the figurehead of the church, the main lead pastor, but I, do, I have seen and experienced a lot of those failings of leadership in the church. So that leads to my next question, which is, because our traditional models of church governance lend itself so easily to these conflicts that we've just described, what's the root fault going on here? Is it that we're expecting more from our leaders in our leadership structure than was originally designed by the early church? Or is it something else? Like, are we, are we putting too much pressure on the role of certain leaders, like pastors and elders and teachers? I definitely think yeah. so. I definitely think once my church went through its kind of people just leaving, I started looking into church government and the roles for pastors. So many of the roles for pastors are assumed. Like what? Like how close the pastors are supposed to be to people, how much they should be going and praying with people if they're sick, how much maybe they should talk to someone after the service, or if they email them now how quickly and how intensely they respond, whose feelings, I guess, they should care about the most necessarily, say if they're from different ethnicities, things like that. There can be assumptions about who is the one who you're supposed to care about more or than the other. Even things like how much money a pastor should have. So much of it, it's strong assumptions, but so rarely does it have to do with like what's actually in the Bible. Yeah, and it seems to be based in a very hierarchical, very top-heavy view of leadership, which I don't think is necessarily reflected in the New Testament. You know, like you're mentioning, David, the pastor has to wear a lot of hats. Mm -hmm. And if you're a more established church with a couple hundred people, you know, you can have extra pastoral roles, as we've mentioned before in the past, like an executive pastor or a teaching pastor. Or a youth pastor, worship pastor. <laughs> right. But if you're in a small church, the lead pastor kind of has to do many of those things by himself. And in all these models, the similar thing we see is that people uphold the role of the pastor as like the main position of authority, which is strange how it became that way in Protestant churches, because that is clearly not what we see at all 
in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, right? It's a much more communal form of leadership where there was a group of elders leading a church and, you know, some of the elders taught, some of the elders preached, but it wasn't obvious that there was like one guy who was the CEO of a congregation, mm-hmm. right? That's very strange that we quickly jumped to that model. But don't you think that it's better to at least have one person in the church who is full-time working for the church? Because I think when I've seen, you know, pastors who are kind of working part-time, maybe it's good because they can depend on the elders more, but how successful can that church really become, I guess, if there there's no full-time staff person? Well, I think Paul says that ministers should be fairly compensated. Yeah, First Timothy 5 yeah. mentions it. I think that's where that pressure comes from, though, is that once the church gets to the point of being able to support one full-time person, that they're kind of saying, well, all right, like now you're the one <laughs> who's working on this full-time, so now you have to do everything. Well, what's interesting is that if someone out there has a different interpretation, let me know. But in my reading, nowhere in the New Testament is the ideal model for church authority for like one person to lead. Like, for instance, in doing research for this episode, uh, I was looking at the usage of the word for pastor, mm-hmm. right? In the Greek, the word for pastor and shepherd are the same word. And the only time that it's mentioned outside of the Gospels is in that passage about the fivefold ministry, right? Apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. That's in Ephesians chapter 4. Mm-hmm. In the passage of the fivefold ministry, um, that's literally the only time the word pastor is mentioned. The only time the word pastor is mentioned is in relation to Jesus in the Gospels. So that's kind of crazy to me. If it's such an important role, if it's a role that we highly regard so much, uh, why is it spoken of so little in the New Testament? But isn't it? I feel like churches need staff people, though, in order to have robust ministry. Not that every church needs to, you know, send missionaries or plant other churches or, or say, create a community group network, which is something that a lot of people benefit very much from. Are you saying that the church should not have any full-time employees? <laughs> I'm just throwing a, a bomb out there to see what happens. <laughs> What I'm thinking of, Scott, is like in Second Peter, it talks about how we have already been given so much, everything we need. And I'm more of the Baptist tradition anyway, which tends to have emphasizing that each Christian is a priest. Each Christian has a connection to God. Mm-hmm. It's in contrast with a lot of the Old Testament leadership models where like it was literally like one person who could hear from God in most cases. But now as Christians... We literally do all have equal access to God through Jesus. Right. And so, like, I think that while leadership is good, I and I definitely believe in being able to compensate people for work that is full-time, I think what you're getting at, Scott, maybe as far as not being mentioned as much is we can kind of go on coast mode and sell ourselves short of what God wants us to do mm. and just kind of uh basically just say shift the responsibility to – well, the pastor's going to do that. I don't know how to do this. The pastor's going to do that. Mm. Except for every Christian has gifts. And yes, we need training. Like in Ephesians 4, it like the pastor's supposed to train people. Like even for a Bible study, there's, you know, people can do a Bible study, read the Bible with others. And, you know, they don't have to like write curriculum that's published to be an official Bible study teacher, you know? Yeah. 
a lot of young Christians who want to go into ministry, who want to maybe lead or start a church, or just have this you know burning desire to make the name of Jesus famous. I think because we we've grown up in our Western culture of celebrity pastors, they have an idea of like to be successful looks like this. But then when I look at scripture, like for example, again, let's look at the fivefold ministry: apostle, prophet, evangelist, uh, shepherd, teacher. They sound almost like things that we want our pastors to be all five of those. Well, <laughs> yeah, for one thing, we want our pastors to be all five of right. those. Exactly. When they're literally only one of them. <laughs> yeah, but on the other hand, if we were to ask Paul, like, which of those five do you think is the most important? There's no indication that he would say pastor, but there is one indication that is something else. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Paul says, earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. If we were earnestly to be any kind of leader in the church, it should be a leader who does prophecy. And I bring that up, David, because it's related back to what you said, which is that when we're saved, we're all meant to be a priesthood of believers. And a priest is very similar to a prophet in the sense that both are people who speak on behalf of God, right? They, they bring forth the word of God to the people and mediate for God. Like what you're saying, Dave, I do think that is more of what God wants to see for his church is more priests and prophets to be raised, more people to speak up, and not just have it all come down to the words of, of the lead pastor. What is prophecy exactly? How do you desire that? Oh, good question. Because <laughs> a lot of people have the idea that prophecy is just, it's just fortune telling, predicting the future. And that's a part of it, but that's a very small part of it. But it's more than just predicting the future. It's announcing God's word for a certain situation or for certain people. When Jonah brings the message of repentance to the Ninevites, he's not telling them what's going to happen. He's, he's telling them, this is what God wants you to do. He's telling the truth. Yeah, he's truth-telling. A prophet is a truth-teller. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need more truth-tellers in the church today, don't you? <laughs> when we look at the, uh, how negative things have gotten. I do believe that the Holy Spirit has endowed more people with the gift of prophecy than believers realize. Mm -hmm. And just like you're saying, David, it would be great to see more people speak up and take charge of their vocations instead of having to rely on the pastor to do everything for them. Yeah. I like how you said it's God's word for a certain situation, which can be at times reminding you of something that's true about God that just matches what you need in the time or matches what you need in the situation or something that like if you're feeling discouraged, reminding someone of a promise of God about provision, love, or something like that. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, like you said, Scott, it hits, it's God's word, but it fits the moment. Jumping off of what you said. Okay, you know, we talked about celebrity pastors or cult of personality and how people expect pastors to be very dynamic, very well-spoken, you know, to be very... Perfect. Yeah, per <laughs> very, very perfect and successful. Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> But David, you brought up like the, the nuanced side of Christian leadership is, you know, a good leader is someone who can actually encourage someone who's down, bring forth a promise from scripture and have that promise bring light into this person's darkness. Mm -hmm. I think that'd be like a good question to transition to is, you know, we've talked about the negative, but what are some qualities of good leadership that we'd like to see more of? Things that people don't usually talk about or go a little bit under the radar. But what do you guys appreciate in a good leader? I think this could be part of 
the masculine aspect of Christian leadership, that it's often men who are lead pastors. It could just be, you know, part of our societal constraints around masculinity. But I think emotional health is really overlooked in pastoral leadership. And I feel like a lot of pastors would probably benefit from counseling, especially if you're a pastor of like a mega church. I mean, you're kind of a, a celebrity at that point. Like that's something that's difficult for people to deal with. All the pressure that we talked about from having to wear every single hat and having to do, <laughs> feeling like you have to do everything perfectly. And I think additionally with ministry or anybody who's in, who's working for a nonprofit, there can be an added pressure of feeling almost like you should be doing everything for free and feeling like you need to be perfect at your job because... That's a huge line. Yeah. Feeling like you need to be perfect at your job because your job is so important. And it is. But pastors need to be able to go on sabbatical. Like they need to be able to feel sad. (laughs) They need a community where they can be fed as well. They can't just be feeding the church all the time. You know, they need to be connected to probably other pastors and they need mentors too. They can't just be the mentor for everybody unless they're being mentored themselves. So I think that emotional health is something that's overlooked both by the pastors and the congregation, you know, the elders. I feel like there's not really an infrastructure for that or a culture of that, of making sure that pastors are able to be emotionally healthy. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. And along those lines, I would add, like being willing to make mistakes. Hmm. In our culture of success, perfectionism is expected from our leaders, which is such a strange thing when you think about the gospel. And the gospel starts with you being a sinner who is obviously a human that makes mistakes and fails and will continue to fail. It's crazy that we have such high standards in an institution that's based on the gospel. Yeah. We should allow for failure. We should allow for mistakes. Obviously, it's, it's a little bit more complicated when we go to like the headlines and where, where's the line drawn. You know, but Peter made a mistake. He gave in to peer pressure to sit with the Jews and not with the Gentiles. And he was called out for it. Mm-hmm. He accepted his mistake. Right In the modern day, it might come to some kind of like big clash of leaders and I don't know, an, an elder board investigation to see who was wrong. We need that humility to realize our leaders are still humans. They're not like demigods. <laughs> so Peter was basically being racist in that context. Yeah. And instead of being mm-hmm. fired and not allowed to be an apostle anymore, Paul, right, just reprimanded mm-hmm. him and then... Peter realized, admitted, oh, yes, that I've been making a mistake. Instead of saying, no, what I'm doing is right, I'm going to start another denomination. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And on top of that, it was the type of church culture, the type of church family, where Paul felt like it was okay for him to call someone out. Mm -hmm. Prophecy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The truth should be and can be told. Whereas I know a lot of people in my experiences where they saw a leader do something wrong and they didn't say anything about it because they felt like they couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Mine as well. And I think that's one of the difficulties with people's, our expectations of leaders. If we don't, if we put too much 
stake in them, like they're more Christian than us. They have a special line to God, so to speak, that we don't have. I think, yeah, like you were saying, one of the marks of that is you can't hold them accountable. Either it's like a no criticism or, uh oh, you did something bad. Now go away forever. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if there was, there was more of a, um, truth telling kind of outspokenness combined with more grace that it would be easier for pastors to correct early. Like maybe if they make a small mistake, they're able to both be called out and be corrected instead of maybe trying to hide it and then making progressively bigger and bigger mistakes because they don't have that accountability and then being found out and then having it be a whole scandal. Right. But one of the things to do that is kind of like being able to both respect them but also hold them accountable. I guess for some, it's kind of like it feels like you're reprimanding your teacher or your parent or your grandparent. And it's it's very uneasy for some people to actually do that. Yeah. But for Christian leaders, since we're all Christians, it's we're supposed to be able to kind of accept that even our leaders will sin and then being able to say, okay, here's restoration. I, another thing, too, as far as the world, I guess, watching, I listened to a podcast, Brilliant Idiots, Andrew Schultz, and who's kind of not religious, but dabbles, I guess. And I know that we mentioned other pastors had issues, and it was interesting to see how they reacted to Carl Lentz firing from Hillsong because they know him, like, as this, I guess they text with him or whatever, and he's been on their podcast. And, like, wow. it was interesting to see how Andrew was saying he was mad at Hillsong for basically just letting him go because he was like, I thought churches were supposed to be forgiving. And wow. I was just like, oh, dang. <laughs> <laughs> so it was an interesting take to hear from someone who's kind of like, Interested in religion in a sense. Even he, he is like, yeah, I thought church was supposed to handle that better. Yeah, I think it's a good call for churches to not just say, yes, we need to rebuke or this or that, but also have structures where it can restore. Because as much as there needs to be rebukes in different places, I think it's the restoring is something that people may be looking to us for. Sometimes canceling needs to happen, but I think if there's more of a a restoration culture where it does say, yes, this is bad. Yes, that's bad. Yes, it's going to turn a lot of people off. But yes, because we're about the gospel anyway, here's a restoration process. I think also in our consumerist culture where we have so many different flavors of churches and church leaders, it can also mm-hmm. feel like, well, if you don't like it, just go to a different church. Because I'm sure people are much more likely to say, oh, well, this church leader mm-hmm. is you know maybe sexist theoretically um, no, I'm and sure. so, that's never happened before yeah <laughs> i'm just going to go to a church where the church leader is not sexist because you know there's a church down the block from me there's a church that's a 10 minute drive away there's another church that's an 11 minute drive away so why would why would i bother going to a church that's already set in its ways it doesn't seem like anybody else here is bothered by the sexism maybe they're all sexist too (laughs) um so why would i stay here and try to change things when that would probably be seen by the other congregants as also just you know hey if you don't like this flavor go have another flavor if you don't like pistachio go get some mint chocolate chip (laughs) and oftentimes when we talk about flavors of a church or the thing that attracts someone to a church 
not all the time, but maybe most of the time, it's because of the preaching. Right. We've put the art of preaching on such a pedestal. Some people go to a church because they're they like the hospitality, they like the people, but more often than not, you know, they're looking for in our culture of celebrity pastors. We want someone who kind of reminds us of a celebrity pastor, someone who is a gifted communicator, someone who can make us laugh, someone who can make us cry, someone who can inspire us.、Uh, it's so interesting that preaching has become like the centerpiece of the church service. You know, for instance, when I was in seminary, of course, there's a preaching class in seminary, and that was always a class where people were like, "Ooh, I'm I'm in preaching class now. I get to." Put my skills up against other students to see who's the best preacher.、Right? <laughs> Preaching battle. <laughs> oh really? Are you serious? We don't say that out loud, but there's definitely like that that competitiveness. <laughs> wow, dark underbelly of seminary. And again, yeah, that's the next verses. The next verses battle preachers. <laughs> And again,、uh, researching scripture for this, what's really interesting is that the word preaching that is mentioned a ton of times in the New Testament. But preaching is almost always brought up in the context of missions. It's not pastors who do the preaching.、Um, it's not elders who we see do the preaching. It's missionaries. Preaching is always mentioned in conjunction with going out and preaching the good news to towns and villages. You know, Paul preaching the word to the Gentiles. Yes, preaching is highlighted in the church, but only as a, only as a tool of evangelism. And for us, it's obviously not that. You know, for us, preaching is like. Showmanship, almost. I think that's dangerous too, because what we're kind of seeing now in the time of coronavirus and live stream church, or even pre-recorded church, that people are seeing the message, the sermon, has already been put on this pedestal. People are saying, "Well, why would I need to go back to church? Why do I physically need to go to church at all?" I can listen to a message from a great church that's in Portland, Oregon, instead of a church that's near me.、Mm-hmm. And when that becomes such a focal point and community is left out of it, you fall into the danger of just having it become a podcast or a lecture series that you listen to,、yeah. instead of a chance to worship God in community and to commune with other Christians. I heard.、Um, Recently, of、uh, Jesus Dojo. What? Oh <laughs> no! Dojo is, is karate, right, David? Yeah, the place you go to to do karate. Yeah, the idea that this guy came up with was, you know, we have these churches which should really be training grounds for becoming Christ-like, but what they've become, <laughs> <laughs> what they've become instead, is really more of. Just lecture halls,、mm. you know. They're a place where there's a stage and where the pastor comes out and gives the message. And he said, you know, church should be about so much more than that. It should be a Jesus dojo where you go and you like work out those, I don't know, Christianity muscles. Keep going with the metaphor. Learn、Keep、how、going. to actually practice <laughs> the way. And hear from other people, and learn from other people, and have accountability—all of、yeah. that stuff. Yeah, preaching shouldn't be seen as a skill mainly, or a vanity project. Or it's like you know, if you just if you just want to be a stand-up comedian or a YouTuber, just do that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> or if you just want to have a podcast, you can just do that. But that's not the same. It should be seen as what it's for, which is 
preaching the gospel and training, like Jenny said, the dojo. And I think the <laughs> dojo is like, maybe you could see that's an example of training people up and then using the imagery of a dojo. And apparently that stuck with you. I mean, yeah, Paul uses a lot of sports metaphors. Mm -hmm. Like he talks about training for the games and um, he talks a lot about running the race. It's not just intellectual. It's the rubber meets the road. Mm -hmm. That ties into the next point I wanted to make, which is in the early church or the church in the first few centuries, it wasn't the sermon that was the centerpiece of the Sunday service. It was actually communion. Yeah. And communion, um, the way that it was structured back in the first few centuries, it's a little bit like you were saying, Jenny. It was actually an opportunity to practice Christian virtues because communion was like the feast that everyone was building up to when they came to church. And at the feast, it was a chance to meet people from different backgrounds, people who are different from you, different cultures, you know, rich eating with the poor. You know, so when I read about that, I feel like, oh man, like if only we could practice something so so visibly like that. I do think that communion, it would be the solution for so many things, especially with the divisions that we have and the oppressions. Like in First Corinthians, it's like, it's so weird reading that chapter 11 because it's talking about people actually from different socioeconomic and different groups eating together and how they had a problem with it. It makes sense that they had a problem with it because that's, but then like in the American church, we're like not doing it at all <laughs> much. What was communion like? I'm not really familiar with this. Was it an actual meal? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, First Corinthians 11 is mentioned, but yeah, it's it hints there, and Scott like, was saying. Did they do it as part of the gatherings, the weekly gatherings? Was it its own event? Would they pray a blessing over the food before consuming it? <laughs> I have so many questions. <laughs> yeah, we don't actually have that much detail. Uh, but, you know, it is mentioned a lot in the New Testament. Uh, not only does Paul mention it, but James mentions communion as well. And by their descriptions, we kind of get an idea of what it was like. Yeah. For example, in the passage that David mentioned, 1 Corinthians 11, they talk about people getting drunk. Right. Which meant there was, like, there was a lot of drinking. <laughs> they got drunk at communion? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no! So that was a common problem. <laughs> they ate so much and they drank so much that they went overboard. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds, uh, I don't even know, so different because yeah. when I think of communion, I even remember we got a communion that you could do at home from a church that I went to growing up, which was um, you get one of those cracker cup combos. So the cup is already filled with the grape juice mm -hmm. and then it has a seal on top and inside of the seal is a tiny teeny weeny oh, little cracker yeah, yeah. yeah we had those so i'm just thinking how different that is and i feel like for a long time i didn't really understand the importance of communion but i wonder if that's partly what we have a, as a church have done to communion kind of relegated it to you know we it's a 10 minute thing that happens after the message the 45 minute message sermon thing <laughs> Yeah, and I think one of the things about it, too, is, like, it talks about examining yourself in the body and, like, not taking communion in an unworthy manner. Oh, yeah. So asking for forgiveness before you take it? Yeah, and, like, it could even be as concrete as going to someone that you're in a physically in a gathering with and trying to make it up with them. Hmm. Yeah. 
like there's a lot of, I guess you could say, quote unquote, relationship maintenance, I guess, in that modeling what we're supposed to do if Christ forgave us, forgive each other. So, yeah, when we're not in the room to actually do that, things can uh, dissolve as they have. And I think the community aspect, I mean, that's just so overlooked in every aspect of church and really church congregants, like our culture. Probably the most memorable communion I ever took was <laughs> two of my friends had just gotten married on, on Saturday evening. And amazingly, they decided that what they wanted to do the following morning was go to a 9.30 a.m. church service, invite everyone who had been to the wedding, all of their family who was there from out of town, people who maybe didn't go to church ever, to take communion, and they were serving communion to us. And it was a big church, but the way that it works is the people that you're sitting next to, you end up taking communion with those people. So since we were all sitting with them at church the next day, we took communion from them. And I remember that additional blessing, like the way they chose to express marriage was by extending this community to others, just was so powerful. I remember I started to cry when they said, the body of Christ broken for you. And just, it was so incredibly mm. meaningful, just because of community. Communion, community. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that would be a very good move as far as trying to center that more. So what are we going to call our church, guys? <laughs> Jesus Dojo. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Dojo. That's the that's the title. <laughs> we can't take that though. It's already branded. They didn't TM. They didn't TM. TM. If they're going to sue us over um, a Christian analogy, <laughs> a Christian metaphor <laughs> in court. So thank you guys so much for listening again this week to the Judson Podcast. As always, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Judson Podcast or email us at info at JudsonPodcast.com. We're available on Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. Let us know if you've heard of these kind of church leader scandals before, or if you haven't, if you have thoughts, if you have questions, if you agree or disagree <laughs> with any of our little soapboxes, just let us know. And thank you for listening. Bye. <laughs>